Hi, I wanted to talk this evening about three things. Uh, renunciation, the, the Bodhisattva ideal, and the experience of enlightenment. <laughs> so, they'll all come together. Enlightenment's a fascinating... The most letters I get are from people saying, is my, practicing, is my practice working? I'm not enlightened yet. Enlightenment's a fascinating subject. If you... I could fill a hole if I, if I, if I uh, titled it uh, something like How to Achieve Enlightenment or, or, yeah, fascinating subject for some folk. But we'll talk about it because it's not as it seems. But, if it, but all, these are all connected and I wanted to talk first of all about renunciation because there's a, basically what it means in the context of this tradition, the Mahayana tradition. And I, as you might know, if any of you have read the, the, the life story of the Buddha, at the very beginning of Buddhism, Renunciation was a big thing. It was a serious thing. You know, it wasn't um, giving up ciggies or changing your diet. Renunciation to give things up, to give things up, basically. Yeah. So um, it was. You gave everything up. You know, you gave all you all you all you basically owned was what, the clothes that you wore, your begging bowl, and that was it. And you, you, the, the plan was that if you, if you wished to become, as it was viewed in those days, enlightened, you actually had to, you had to live in uncertainty. You had to be uncertainty. So this uncertainty was engineered by the fact that, first of all, you had no way where you knew you were going to sleep. Secondly, you were only allowed to beg once a day. And if you didn't get any food on that begging round, then you didn't eat that day. So every day was, was filled with uncertainty. Um, and, and, and it was very much a monastic tradition. And it was, the view was that probably only uh, ordained monks um, this time round in this particular life were, were likely to achieve enlightenment. And for lay people, a lay people's job was really to support them in that and for the lay person to wait until an approach, you know, the, the, They'd led sufficiently good lives to be reborn as monks. So that was the that, that was the, the very first tradition, and it's still maintained in some places in the world. You know, where the Theravadan tradition is maintained closely, like in uh, in uh, uh, Sri Lanka or what's Burma called nowadays? Myanmar is it? Myanmar, Myanmar. Thailand even. But the, the, there was a change in view, and that's, uh, the change in view arose when the Mahayana school was formed. And the Mahayana school took the view that, that renunciation was, didn't, wasn't necessarily about external things, but it was more about an internal renunciation. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a change of heart, really, or a change of mind as much as, as, the, as giving up everything and having no possessions. And... And, and, and most strikingly, the view of the Mahayana school was that everybody, independent of their caste or colour or sex or whether they were lay people or monks, was capable and able of being enlightened. Whatever this enlightenment thing is that we'll talk about later. <coughs> and it was always available. It wasn't kind of available in, in a very particular fortuitous life. It was always available. Um, 
So the, the, the renunciation changed in its flavour, and I mean one of the ways it is manifested in, in you know is talked about in the Zen tradition when we talk about the Great Way is not difficult. It just avoids picking and choosing. This was one way of this was one renunciation where you actually stopped. Um, making comparisons about things and you, you lived with what was happening so uh, and we can talk about that, that the equanimity that that implies but the, the real thing that, that, that in, to give up and the thing that still remains very relevant to us today to give up is the way we think so particularly in Zen you know, the, what, what, what we we could call a mind road, if you like, where we follow everything through mindfully. I mean, we think about it. So if something happens, uh, if a dog barks, you know, we think, well, first of all, we look, you know, what type of dog is it? Is it going to bite me? Uh, who is it with? Uh, what type of dog is it? We could go through all those things. We don't just experience the bark, or we don't just experience birdsong. We think about it a lot, and the, the, so the, the renunciation is giving up that and having direct experience. But not all the time, of course, because you need, obviously, to, to use this, this particular sense. But um, we give up the what we give up, and, and it's really difficult to give up. It's even more difficult, I think, than giving up your house or your, you know, or your partner or is to give up being in the deeply grooved way of thinking that we all think <laughs> so that we can become more spacious and open and not be kind of constricted by the way that our upbringing our particular personality all these things cause us to think in a particular way and pragmatically an outcome of giving that up is an equanimity, that's a good word, can arise for us. And that's clearly talked about in Zen when we say, you know, when it rains, it just rains. When it's sunny, it's just sunny. When you're happy, you're just happy. When you're sad, you're just sad. Uh, there isn't any... Um, there's a greater acceptance, if you like, of the ups and downs of life, which, which in a way is really sensible because... If you don't accept them, what are you going to do? They're not going to stop. And you're going to fight them and you'll be resentful, uh, you know, and all, all, you know, become a victim, all those kind of things. So it's uh, not, you know, these things are all very appropriate to the situation. I'm not, I'm not advocating kind of pacifism or, in the, you know, in, in, in the face of a real injustice that you don't act. I'm not talking about a fatalism. It's more about bringing, bringing awareness to bear on the situation. Um, so that, that was the first thing that the, the, uh, uh, the Mahayana school, they brought a kind of democratic or democracy to the idea of enlightenment. The second thing they brought, which was, which was uh, equally brand new, was the idea of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva, as you, as you know, uh, I mean, mythically, the Bodhisattva is somebody someone or some 
So some person who has the possibility and the capacity to be completely enlightened, such that, that they, you know, traditionally such, they're so enlightened that they stop producing karma. And if they stop producing karma, they're not going to be reborn because they've got nothing to work out. And this is a kind of mythical, or it can be viewed as mythical. Some people believe that, that it's really like that, you know. That's not my, not my picture, but some people do. Um, but that, that's kind of not very, you know, we hear that and we read about it, but it's not really relevant to us, is it? I mean, you know, most of us aren't going to be thinking, I'm so, you know, I, I, I could actually leave the wheel of life, but I'm going to stay behind and save everyone else. We're not, that, that, isn't, that isn't the deal. So what, what does it really mean in real terms to be a Bodhisattva? And essentially and absolutely it's got to mean that you're involved in life that you're really involved in what's going on because if you're not really involved in what's going on how can you be a bodhisattva and if you're going to be really involved in what's going, to go, going on then you need to be empathetic to what's going on because otherwise you're not going to be much use and if you're going to be empathetic it means that you have to be open and if you're open it means you've got to be vulnerable and so it's not the, it's, it, it, oddly enough as I've said before and it tickles me I really like it that the lion's roar is being vulnerable it's a brave, the bravest thing to be uh, so a bodhisattva can be anyone, you know, it can be a, it can be a lay person, it can be a monk, it can be Joe Bloggs down the road, it can be the sweeper, uh, the window cleaner, it can be anyone that is sufficiently engaged in life in an empathetic way that they want to support other people. That's a practical way to see it. And the other thing is that we have to be tolerant that life goes up and down, you know, that, that, that we, we all, in, in order to be a Bodhisattva we also, to some degree, or to a lot, have to be worldly. Because if we're not worldly, if we don't understand how the world works, we can't kind of move in the world. So it, it, it's not about being sacred and holy, we also have to be worldly to be a Bodhisattva. Um, and you know, if we're worldly, it means that we will sometimes fail. That we're not, that we're, we, you know, we can't be perfect. We will make mistakes, um, and that now and again, or maybe quite often, chaos will reign. So you know, the Bodhisattva ideal is not about being a perfect human being. You can be a lay practitioner and a Bodhisattva, and and fuck off. <laughs> uh, okay. So and then, the, so let, let's get now back down to the nitty gritty of this enlightenment that, that was talked about. I want you to read. I, want, I just want to read just the definition of. Uh, I think what was it called? Jack called, called John Tarrant, uh, who's a. Uh, I think he's a successor of Reiki Moshi, and I read one of his articles, which inspired this, this, you know, the, the sense of this talk, the essence of this talk, and he says. <clears throat> the experience of enlightenment is that there is a great luminous world here in which each object is alive and vibrant and containing all other objects 
and at the same time the subject-object boundary is quite broken down so it's, it's an experience of a luminous world in which each object is alive and vibrant and containing all other objects and at the same time the subject-object boundary is broken down this is, this is a description of Indra's net you know, where everything is reflected in everything else um, and a point he makes which I completely agree with him is this uh, this is not uh, an enlightenment experience is not as you might read in in uh, in, um, in, in, in conventional traditional uh, religious experiences like the, a mystic may have where, it's t- where they talk about ecstasy it's not about ecstasy that you know that, that it's, it's, it's about being completely present rooted in, on, the, on the earth and maybe full of joy but it's not ecstatic so it's just very different than that kind of mystical experience that holy experience that describes sometimes Christianity and, it, you know, and, and, you know, and in Islam and you know, an awful lot of traditions like uh, the whirling dervishes is about ecstasy I think <laughs> not really though but I think it's about ecstasy um, So, what does it, what, what does, what does, what does enlightenment mean for us? Well, pragmatically, I, I, I'll say this. This is how I see it pragmatically in terms of my own experience and with working with lots of people and, and you know working with lots of other teachers. Is it can go two ways. It can go two ways. You can, you know, there's, and, and it's very, it's, it. it clearly kind of delineated in the Zen tradition there is the Rinzai way and there's the Soto way and obviously there's a lot of cross fertilization but let's be let's, let's polarize them to make the, so in the Rinzai way there's sudden enlightenment so you have this great big breakthrough possibly it could be a small one it could be a big one of this kind of luminous sense of unity a unity of experience and then out of that, uh, that becomes an inspiration for practice. It doesn't often stick. You, 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 might, might, you know, another one. You might cultivate sufficient practice for another one to arise. But sometimes folks just only ever have one. That's the most ordinary. And then there's the gradual enlightenment, and this is the one I think is relevant to most of us in lay practice, which is. We practice on a day-to-day basis. Our practice deepens and richen, gets richer and richer. And slowly, one day, you know, we might, might, we might wake up and we suddenly discover that actually that gateless gate we've walked through. We're on the other side of the gate. It's not like a big flash. It's not, you just discover, I've walked through. I'm on the other side of the gate. I kind of get this whole thing now. I know how it all works. It's a different experience, but it comes to the same. I think it comes to, to to bring the same frame of mind, if you like. And uh, something that really struck me that uh, that John Tarrant mentions is that, interestingly, and it certainly it's been you know it's not an uncommon experience. The, te- the, the teachers that have the big breakthroughs. The, you know, the massive ones are very often in their lineage you get trouble down the line. <laughs> and it's the more plodding, steady, ongoing, you know, year in, year out practice uh, 
the plodders, the donkeys if you like they're called in Zen which probably includes most of us the sustainer better practice you know, and, and D.T. Suzuki was called his name was Daizetsu uh, what, was it Daizetsu? what was his name uh, I've got written out Daizetsu which means great donkey you know, he was given a name of great donkey because he was slow it took him a long time but it was considered to be a quality because it was really rooted in him it was really solid in him and, not, and, and, you know, and also when, it, when it's hard for you and when you know, the path is difficult and when it's hard to, 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 to get, really get hold of it all and you feel like a donkey you are much more sympathetic and understanding of other people who are having the same struggle you know when you're a high flyer you can't kind of get it, you know. Why, why, what's, the, what's the problem? You know? <laughs> but if you're a plodder, then you, 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 know, you, you can become more, and it's more, it can be more deeply rooted in you. So I really wanted to, to say all that to give everybody heart because I'm, I'm asked this question, you know, what, my practice is not, what, is my practice good? Is my practice bad? Is my, I've had, I haven't had any big experience. Am I a failure? All these kind of things, you know. And uh, there's really room for us all. Absolutely room for us all. And whether we're walking around with the veil of delusion or not, I mean, without the veil is, you know, we're seeing the world in its nakedness, in its, in its realness, that can be termed enlightenment but most of us most of the time are walking around with our veils you know maybe several of them and that's okay as well you know it's, they're not going to just drop away quickly there's no need to beat yourself up but you have to bear in mind that the practice and the work and, and you know and if you're involved in the practice your work is about dropping the veils if you can and of course that leaves you, as we said before, in terms of a bodhisattva, it can leave you being vulnerable. And so that's, what, that's, that's why it's brave. That's why it requires a kind of a toughness that's in contradiction to the general sense of what vulnerability means. And, you know, sometimes you also have to be, uh, you have to protect yourself, which is perfectly ordinary. You know, you've got to remain sane, you've got to be able to function in the world. You don't want to be beaten up too much by folk who, you know, the, uh, who, who can, can prey on vulnerability. So it's, 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 really, it's really being able to both protect yourself and act in a way when you feel it that it's right to, to kind of open up to this other person. I'll read you something that, um, that this, uh, from this article that John Tarrant wrote. Really nice. So there's, not, so, so there's something to be said for being a slow, foolish person. That when it goes in, it goes deep. 
It's better to have nothing to, than to have something good. So be very patient with who you are. Be very honest with who you are. It is enough to be truly and deeply and utterly who you are. That will always open the way for you. Trying to be somebody else or to have somebody else's enlightenment experience is just another veil in front of you. And you can't ever get there from here. Naturally there will be veils and that's okay too. Be patient with yourself and with your veils. Be patient with yourself. And that's a really nice, compassionate, kind thing to say from a, you know, uh, a teacher I imagine has been through the mill. <laughs> okay.